So I'd like to talk tonight about the five spiritual faculties of faith, perseverance, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom. And as I'm talking about them, I'd like to invite you um, to directly experience the talk. So rather than hearing it as words or information, to just explore what it would be like to actually experience it. So maybe to begin by just coming into your body as you're listening. Just see if you can be aware of the sensations in your body, connection with the floor, the chair. And you don't need to close your eyes to do that. Um, Just to see if it's possible to be in a body and be listening at the same time. And the five faculties are these qualities of mind and of heart that, when fully developed, lead to awakening. But they also arise out of our practice. And each of us has these qualities developed to different extents. Some of us find it easy to, um, to experience faith, Others of us, concentration comes easily to us. Each of us has a different quality that's more developed than the others. And so you might want to be aware of that as you listen too, just to notice how that is for you. And um, it's very helpful as we go throughout our practice to just notice the balance of those five qualities. You can think of them in terms of a loop, in a way, with faith at the, at the top of the loop, and then it goes round to um, perseverance, and then mindfulness, and concentration, and wisdom. And it's a circle, because the more confidence there is, um, and the more wisdom there is, it keeps feeding around. Another way of looking at it that's described is to think of it as um, a wagon with four horses, two pairs of horses. And one pair is concentration and effort, and the other pair is faith and wisdom. And if you have an imbalance, then the clot goes around in circles, or you get stuck. So, for example, if there's um, too much faith and not enough wisdom, we have New Age Dharma. (laughs) And if there's too much wisdom, or if there's understanding about what's going on in the world, and you've lost faith, then there's a lot of skepticism and despair. If there's a lot of energy um, and not much concentration, there's a lot of restlessness. And some of you probably experience that today. Or the converse of that is if there's a lot of... um, if you're beginning to develop concentration, but there's no energy, then there's sleepiness. And so it's, it's useful to use mindfulness to balance um, the horses. So I'd like to start by talking about faith. Um, sada is the Pali word, and faith really is talking about conviction or um, trust that... Be- It's something that brought you here. Each one of us had some conviction or some element of trust 
that we came here. We believed that there was something of value here for us. It takes that faith to begin the journey and to be able to let go of the holdings and the old beliefs and to step into the unknown a little bit, to not know how this week will unfold. To have some faith in these teachings that there's a universal truth and that there's something that will lead us to freedom. And it also takes faith to keep meeting the obstacles that are in our path and not to get discouraged by it, to keep coming back, to be able to continue. And with faith, we can feel connected to something that's larger than ourselves, that there's this larger sense of awareness, um, that it makes things workable, and we can come to an edge and trust in something that's much greater than just this one. It's different from hope. Hope is often accompanied by fear, fear of what might happen, or fear that our needs or desires will not be met. So that the other side of, of, the, of hope very often is fear, and the Buddha talked about it like it was two sides of the same coin. And that when we bind hope to fear, then we can end up in that circle that's, that's endless, where insecurity feeds on um, hope, and there's not really a way out of that. It's natural when we're unhappy to have an image or a vision of a better future somehow. Um, we might hope for wiser leaders or um, a safer world. And it's natural to hope that. But when we're fixated on an outcome or an expectation, when our happiness is tied to that coming about, um, then it leads to further suffering. So when our relief from suffering is based on it turning out a certain way, it's a setup for, um, for disappointment. But when our hope is connected to faith, then there's a possibility of opening, that we can open the heart to be in um, more difficult experiences. Almost a way of shining light in places of darkness. Um, Some years ago, uh, I fell into a place of a lot of doubt and despair about the way the world was in. And I was on a retreat, and I came to a place where I gave up hope, where it felt like things were just hopeless. There was no way that anything could possibly be any different. I didn't see any hope for the world. And in giving up the hope, I fell into this place of, oh, this is what hopelessness is like, and allowed the feelings. This is what unbearableness is like, and allowed the feelings, and allowed the grief... And it was almost like, this is what heartbreaking is like. And um, a, a close friend of mine was teaching the retreat and um, really just encouraged me to keep being with the unbearableness. And because I had enough faith and trust in him and in the teachings, I was able to stay with it and see that from that place of hopelessness came transformation. So it's as though in completely allowing the despair, there were seeds of new possibilities 
that could arise. So we're more able to meet the unknown when, um, when we have that basic understanding um, of the possibility of faith. We can face the fear. There are different types of faith, and the first type, the type that often brings us to this practice, is bright faith. We may have heard an inspiring teacher like the Dalai Lama or a friend or listened to tapes or read a book or met someone who's really inspired us with the transformation in their life. And um, the Buddha said, if it were not possible to free the mind from greed, hatred, and delusion, I wouldn't tell you to do so. So it's that knowing that there's a possibility, that inspiration. But bright faith brings a kind of temporary glow. We're really inspired for a while, but there isn't really a basis underneath it. It's just someone else's words, and it's very wonderful. It brings us to the practice, but we need more than that. And then there's blind faith, where we just take the teachings on trust. We haven't investigated them, we're just believing. And the problem with blind faith is that often it can lead to dogmatic thinking or to, um, to cults in a way. We're taking it um, without investigating it, without verifying it for ourselves. And it's not supported by any kind of understanding. We're just taking it for someone else's word. So what sustains longer is verified faith. And that's the faith that comes from our own direct experience of the teachings. It's not coming from outside of ourselves. It's coming from a place um, that's deep inside. And many of you who have sat for some years have had these moments where you've experienced directly um, that everything changes. And so when you've had the direct experience that everything changes, when you get caught in a difficult mind state, you really know, oh, this too shall pass. Because you've had the direct experience of it. Or perhaps you've experienced that you're not your mind states. And so again, when you get caught, there's that faith that comes that there's a possibility to not get caught in it. And we begin to know the truth from our own story not just from what we've been told. So it's that coming from ourselves that gives rise to faith. This is from Arthur Miller. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread, the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger off. Within a week, you're climbing over the corpses of children bombed in a subway. What hope can there be if that is so? I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream returned each night until I dared not go to sleep and grew quite ill. I dreamed I had a child, and even in the dream, I saw it was my life. And it was an idiot, and I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap again and clutched at my clothes, until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, 
perhaps I could sleep. And I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible, but I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life in one's own arms. So it's that taking our own life, it's that looking within and discovering for ourselves the compassion that we have, the true nature that we have, and embracing it. What's special about the Buddha's teachings on faith are that there are three components. It wasn't that he was teaching, if you believe, you'll be saved. First of all, there was the initial trust that um, this awakened being had the truth, had some teachings for a possibility for freedom. Then there was the belief in the teachings. Yes, this makes sense to me. But the third part, the important part, is there was a responsibility to it. There was a request for a willingness to carry it out. Not just that we're hearing it, but now we're actually doing something. We're taking some action. So faith in the Buddha's teaching then arises through investigation and through experiencing it directly for ourselves. And often what gets in the way of faith is doubt. Doubt in ourselves, doubt in the teaching, comparing mind. Um, often that place where we have a lot of self-judgment and struggle. And the refuges are really a support to our faith, remembering again the refuges that we took at the beginning of the retreat, to take refuge in the Buddha or in our own true nature, in all the wise teachers who've been before us, and to take refuge in the teachings and then in the Sangha that's supporting us. And what we find is that one small moment of trust will lead to another, will lead to another. So gradually we build confidence. We see that, oh, I was able to be with that difficult sitting. Or that really awful mind state did actually pass. And we start to build confidence and then have faith to continue. And what develops after a while is abiding faith. And abiding faith is that really deep connection with our true nature, where we know we have a bone-deep lived understanding of the practice. We connect more and more directly to our own true nature. And that inspires us to realize our ideals. It inspires us to be able to walk our talk to be able to more and more act in accord with what we believe, what we know to be true. We start to really deeply embody, I'm already enough. I don't need to become this or that. And we really deeply connect with our compassion and with our understanding. So maybe just to close your eyes for a moment and just become aware of how your faith is right now. 
perhaps how it's been in the last while, and how it actually is in this moment. Your conviction, your trust in yourself, or in the teachings. Just to notice without judgment how it is. And when we have the beginnings of faith and the beginnings of conviction, then energy comes from that naturally. And we begin to develop the kind of perseverance that we need for our practice. And that's the second of the faculties, perseverance or right effort. One of my teachers, Upandita, used to say, practice with heroic effort entertain no considerate attachment to body or life, develop liberating energy. And that was sort of in the line with um, the Buddhist teaching where he says, if the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and bones and sinews remain. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, effort, and exertion. And that sort of sounds a bit drastic for us, but you might reflect on it when you have the urge to have a tea break during a walking period. (laughs) Yet energy and effort are needed for our practice, but we need to learn to use them wisely so that we don't create further suffering. Because it's easy to be out of balance. And when the Buddha talked about right effort, there were these two aspects of it. There was the development of wholesome mind states and the nurturing of them, and the avoiding or um, freeing ourselves from unwholesome mind states and practices. And sometimes our energy or our effort can get a little bit hard or driven or striving. And we want the kind of effort that will sustain our practice, but not that will lead to tension and exhaustion. Initially, we do need to bring effort and perseverance. And as Gil was talking this morning, it's like rubbing sticks. We need to keep coming back and keep coming back in order to build concentration and in order to Um, develop mindfulness. We come into the moment over and over again. But if we do it in a way that's tight and contracted, then it's uncomfortable. If we can do it in a way that's more gentle, includes the sleepiness, includes the restlessness, or includes the doubt, and just keep coming back anyway, then it builds and it starts to sustain itself. We just are there with whatever is happening. We just keep coming back, no matter what. And in that way, we're not giving up on ourselves. And that's a wonderful part of perseverance, is this quality of not giving up on ourselves, no matter what's happening. And as we practice, we begin to see ways that we block energy and ways that we cause difficulty. Whenever there's forcing or striving or struggling with ourselves, there's a tension that's created. 
um, and in the same way, constantly judging or getting upset with ourselves does the same thing. When we're fighting these inner battles, it's exhausting and tiring. So what helps is to recognize the signs in the body. For some of us, it's tightness in our neck. Others, it's a headache. Some people, it's contraction in the belly or the back. And just to notice, what are the signs for me that there's a little too much striving, there's a little too much efforting? Sometimes there's anxiety or wanting to get somewhere or achieve something or wanting to get it right. A lot of us are afflicted by trying to get it right. Am I doing it the right way? Or maybe we're trying to get rid of something and there's an efforting in that. And it can help just to remember non-doing. To just have this sense of coming to stillness, of just for a moment letting it be, of coming to ease. The levels of striving can be really subtle um, and they can sneak in and we can think that everything's um, just going along smoothly but somewhere there's an agenda, there's a contraction. So that's why it really helps to pay attention to our body um, from moment to moment so we can tell when that's happening. So you might want to do that right now just to stop for a moment as I'm talking and just notice the energy in your body. Maybe there's a high energy state or maybe there's low energy. And then just be aware of what your perseverance is like. Maybe as I'm talking you've been wandering off. Maybe you've been coming back once in a while. Again, notice if there are any judgments about it. And just see how that feels to you, that quality of perseverance. In the same way as we can get caught in striving, we can also get caught in spacing out and drifting into fantasy. And so it helps to use our mindfulness to come to balance. There's a story in the suttas about um, a monk, uh, Sona. It's a famous story. And the monk Sona was practicing. He came from a fairly wealthy family, and he was a musician. And he was doing walking meditation, and he was walking back and forth in his, along his path, really efforting until his feet were cut and bleeding. And so he sort of stopped and he thought to himself, of all of the monks that the Buddha has, I am one with perseverance. And yet I'm not enlightened. I'm not getting anywhere near enlightenment. Maybe I should go back to being a musician. Maybe I should go back to my family. They've got enough money and I could make merit instead. And the Buddha, with his all-seeing eye, noticed this happening with um, the monk Sona. And so he disappeared from Vulture Peak where he was teaching and reappeared in front of Sona and said, isn't it true that you were having thoughts of leaving and um, going back to your family? And so Ajahn um, monk Sona admitted this, Venerable Sona. And so the Buddha said to him, when you were a musician, if, you, if the strings of your lute were too loose, how did the music sound? Did it sound good? 
He said, no. If the strings of your lute were too tight, did it sound good? No. Well then, if the strings are tuned just right, how will the music be? Well, then the music would be, would be in tune, it would be fine. And he said, so too, your perseverance has to be neither too tight nor too loose. If your perseverance is tuned correctly, then you can develop the five faculties to realize awakening. And then he disappeared again. So Sona started walking, and he walked and used his perseverance in a way that was neither too loose nor too tight. And all five faculties came into balance, and very soon he was fully awakened. And I think when I first heard that story, I sort of thought, well, maybe one of my teachers will magically appear in front of me, and I will develop the right kind of perseverance. (laughs) And I'm still waiting. (laughs) I wish it were that. It sounded so simple. But it does help to have balance in our perseverance, and it's mindfulness that helps us notice when we're too tight and when we're too loose. And it also helps us manage those high-energy states and those low-energy states, which we all have in our practice. Sometimes we can waste energy and effort a lot when everything is experienced as I and mine. There's a kind of contraction that happens when we identify with difficult states, or even with pleasant states, that kind of consumes and takes up a lot of energy. And it's very freeing when we can release that. Because then the energy can move more freely. And with difficult mind states, it can be very helpful to notice that. When we resist difficult mind states, we're also um, taking up energy and wasting our effort. So, for example, with fear when we're resisting fear, or or anger as well, when we're resisting and holding back, there's a way that we're using a lot of effort and energy to hold it off, and it gets blocked and it's tiring. And if we can begin to allow the, the fear and the anger to move through, then we see that they too are just energy states. There's the energy of fear, which is very unpleasant, or of anger, which is unpleasant, but it arises And then as it passes through, the energy is freed. And then we have not only the energy that's been freed from not holding it off, but also the energy from the state itself. And that's um, very rewarding for our practice. When we can approach ourselves with compassion and with kindness in that kind of way, without judging, then there's an infinite store of energy. It kind of replenishes itself rather than exhausts us. Many of us yesterday um, were doing a fair amount of efforting and and we were tired by the end of the day because there was a lot of energy used in keeping on coming back and in struggling with sleepiness and restlessness and all those states. So this kind of courageous energy or perseverance is very helpful in helping us through difficult states. An important aspect of, of, um, of perseverance 
is continuity. Again, I think Gil mentioned that this morning. That continuity that we can keep coming back even between the walking periods and the sitting periods so that we keep bringing back our attention to this moment over and over. We keep remembering, oh, here I am again. Oh, what's happening in this moment? Whether we're eating or walking from here to the dining hall, just to notice what's the point when I lose mindfulness and space out? Not that we're, again, forcing ourselves to be mindful or present, but just more that gentle encouragement to keep being awake, what's happening in each moment. When we work with energy in this way, when we finally come to that kind of balance, it's, it brings a lot of joy and inspiration because the energy is freed in that kind of way. So the third quality is mindfulness. And it's really central to our practice and balances it all. Shantideva said, those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds, for those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harm as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. But if the elephant is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. So mindfulness is that coming into the moment, knowing what's happening over and over. And it's unbiased and mirror-like. It reflects exactly what's there, without judgment, without adding. And it has three qualities. One of them is the friendliness that Gil mentioned, that kindness, we're paying kind attention. We're not attacking the object of our awareness. We're greeting it, approaching it with kindness, with respect, with compassion. And the next quality of mindfulness is that it's very precise. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.